Hello everybody and welcome to episode 56 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters and what matters on today's episode is history and we're going to be speaking to a man bringing back one of the most iconic brands in the game's history, Terry Kaler from the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. But before we introduce Terry, let me bring in my co-host for the day as always from the US, Writer, blogger, analyst, golf channel type, uh, Jeff, uh, sorry, Jeff Shackelford. Shack, good to have your company as always. Looking forward to chatting with Terry today. This should be terrific. Yes, absolutely. As a former Hogan Iron player, I uh, can't wait to hear what he has to say. Yeah, most definitely. And I'm sure another former Hogan Iron player, maybe even a present-day Hogan Iron player, other co-host from down here in Australia, Mike Clayton, former touring pro, golf course designer, columnist, analyst, all-round good guy. Clates, I'm sure you've used plenty of Hogan equipment over the years. I did. In fact, the last set I bought, I played with for six months, and then they told me I couldn't use them because the grooves were illegal, which was very nice. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure whether the more interesting thing about that is, Clates, that a golf pro bought some golf I equipment. I did. I bought a set of <laughs> Yeah. I did. That'd be almost unheard of. It was. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, that, I remember that. That was only a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Wasn't that around the same time that our hickory friend whose name escapes me, Australian bloke, was told he couldn't use his hickory Perry. clubs in the Australian Senior PGA because they didn't conform. Yeah, Perry Summers, because the grips went parallel or some ridiculous. I mean, yeah. That's exactly right. That's and, you know, uh, Sandy Lyle, he played his hickory putter again in the Senior PGA, but uh, I asked Tad Moore if he's going to make him a set with conforming grooves so he can just, just go all hickory in one of these senior events, and he's, he's waiting for the call. Wow, because he won the well, wouldn't world. Wouldn't that be fun, though? He won the world thing, didn't he, Sandy Lyle? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'd be fun to see him on a short Champions Tour event just, just for fun do yeah, it. But that would be, uh, would be I'm going to plant that idea with him if yeah. I get the chance. Yeah, good idea. I'm sure he's thought of it. We can all wait uh, wait to see it. We must bring in our guest, gents. With, uh, we're getting carried away with our own uh, chatting and carrying on here. Terry Kaler, Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. Terry, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the time. Can't wait to chat today. A company and equipment, obviously, with such a magnificent history in the game. Well, thank you for having me. I, it's, it's a story we love talking about, and it's the most humbling and exciting thing I think I've ever, I know that I've ever done in my life. Uh, but it's quite the venture we're on, and, and I'm excited to talk about it with you all. Well, we're glad that you're on Twitter because, of course, the name Hogan, and we've discussed this before on the show, and I know Clates, as a, a touring pro, has come across many of these people. There is a, a band of people in the world, golf fans, that we call Hogan Disciples, of which I think you proudly probably call yourself one talk first before we come to the equipment just a bit about the mystique of ben hogan himself there are some legendary stories of of course about him and some of them are probably even true well you know and it, it's been wonderful in this experience we've had you know one of the first things we did when we formed this company is we brought it right here to fort worth texas where the hogan company was built where mr hogan's legends were were headquartered and and there are a tremendous number of stories about mr hogan probably none of them are totally fictitious but and maybe none of them are exactly as they've come to be told but um you know we've we've met a lot of people that knew mr hogan personally people that worked for mr hogan dating all the way back into the 60s and um you know so we're trying to do everything we can do um, as we say here, this isn't the old Ben Hogan company, but it is the real Ben Hogan company. And, uh, we've had people tell us that it's very interesting that we all refer to Mr. Hogan as Mr. Hogan. That's anybody mentioned. It's never Hogan. It's never Ben Hogan. It's Mr. Hogan because he earned that reverence for, and particularly from all of us. But, um, you know, there are so many great stories and, and we, we want to help keep those alive and, and told because, uh, people have just a deep abiding love for Mr. Hogan. Even people that never met him, they have a love for the values and the principles that he stood for. 
Um, and uh, and the mystique, as you mentioned, um, uh, you know, the subject of a whole book is this Hogan mystique, and because uh, he was a very private person, so because he didn't let everybody in, uh, people got partway in, and then I think they just connected dots to come up with the rest a lot of times. And such incredible physical feats on the golf course, and particularly after the accident, of course. I mean, rightly legendary stuff and an extraordinary sort of figure. In the game, you, of course, got to meet Mr. Hogan, didn't you, Terry, at some point? I read just this morning that, at one point, you designed a putter that he cast an eye over. Tell us, tell us Yeah, it, well, and before that, my, I was raised under Mr. Hogan's indirect tutelage from my father, who played golf with Mr. Hogan before the war. And, and my father was uh, in the clothing business, multi-generation, and, and he and Mr. Hogan had, as I look back now, and I see they had a lot of similar characteristics. And whether that was my father modeling after Mr. Hogan or whether it was just the fact that they were both, you know, children of the Depression and, and grew up close to the to the clothing business with Mr. Hogan, with Marvin Leonard, et cetera. But I, I was raised with, you know, there's nothing wrong with your game. 5,000 practice balls won't fix. And, you know, the secrets in the dirt out there, just go keep hitting golf balls. And, um, you know, all of the, of the Hogan wisdom uh, that came from power golf and then five lessons. And uh, ironically, or, you know, as I look back, I didn't make anything out of it maybe then, but when Five Lessons was first published in Sports Illustrated, the first issue was March 11th, 1957, which was my fifth birthday. And I think I was raised, as I look back, to think that that wasn't a coincidence. And maybe I came up with that on my own and my dad didn't tell me it was wrong. But I, I idolized Mr. Hogan. I mean, there was no football player, baseball player or any other kind of sports star that, you know, held the position in my mind and my heart that Mr. Hogan did as my singular sports hero. And so I studied and I learned from him and I played Hogan's always through my early life. Um, and then in the early 1990s, I designed the line of putters. And I was looking for a home for it. I had always thought, you know, I'd love to do something with the Ben Hogan company. And I took the putters in there and I did have a wonderful first experience with Mr. Hogan. And um, he shook my hand and, and, I, and I saw both sides of Mr. Hogan in this little episode. I hope this doesn't get too wordy, but he, I told him, I said, you know, Mr. Hogan, you might not remember, but you played golf with my father in uh, before the war. And he looked with those steely eyes, you know, up into the corner of the office, kind of you could see him just going through the memory banks. And he looked at me and you could just see almost sorrow and sadness in his eyes. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't remember. And I think that showed the real. I didn't realize it at the time till I look back, but it showed the real sincere side of this wonderful gentleman. And so then we went to, you know, well, the president of the company said, you know, well, Mr. Ogan Terry's been designing putters for us. And I had this very proud of this prototype, 100% CNC milled out of brass and a stainless hosel. It was a beautiful piece of work and perfect down to the nth degree, you know. And Mr. Hogan looked at it and he stared at it. I mean, didn't say anything. He did that. It was just, I've learned that that wasn't me. He was singling out. He did this with everybody. And he looked at it for the longest time and he turned around in his chair and he stood up and sold the putter, but he never stroked it back and forth. He just sold it. And he sat back in his chair and turned back toward me and handed it across the desk and said, the line is crooked. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm hoping. And then I realize now as I look back, it wouldn't, that was totally in his character. Not it's nice, but, but it's the line is crooked. So <laughs> I went back to the machine shop and the, and the craftsman I was working with on it. And I said, you know, tell them the story. And I said, of course, I know the line ain't crooked because it's all CNC milled. And the guy said, well, you know, it could be. So he went and put it on the, you know, all the gauges. And the line was something goofy, like three or four thousandths of an inch off of square. 
So I never will know whether Mr. Hogan could see that or because of his bad left eye. It could have been to him crooked in the other direction, for all I know. But I got two fabulous Hogan stories in 10 minutes. <laughs> so. ah, fantastic. I'm sure I've heard that one recycled with Tiger Woods and Scotty Cameron now that I think about it. So it's nice to hear <laughs> the... Uh, the original version. Of course, Terry, I've been reading about sort of you this morning and this venture. Um, you're all in with this in what is a pretty high-risk business golf club making and trying to bring back uh, an iconic name. Others have tried previously with, with other brands. McGregor springs to mind, and, of course, Greg Norman had a, a go at that a few years ago. Um, this is a big thing to do. Did you? I know you sort of got into it because you sort of want to and you genuinely you love the Hogan brand and the name and all those those other things, but it's a... It's a pretty big thing what you've done, isn't it? To trying to bring back uh, a brand that has previously seen the heights um, and struggled in recent years for all sorts of reasons, which we might talk about later. Well, yeah, and, and there's a lot of principles behind that. I am all in. Uh, our entire team is all in. Nobody's trying this. You know, one of my favorite philosophers of the 20th century is Yoda from Star Wars, and he said, do or do not, mm. there is no try. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we are doing here um, – but it was kind of a convergence of the values that I have about golf clubs, probably a lot of it from my father and Mr. Hogan about just straightforward, you know, provable performance designs, uh, no monkey business, no smoke and mirrors. Um, and in fact, a golf writer wrote about me about 20 years ago, and he did an article in Lynx magazine, and the title of it, he called it Smoke and Mirrors. But I've never believed in smoke and mirrors on golf clubs, and I believe that there's a set of inherent design principles that you don't stray too far from. I think Mr. Hogan exhibited a lot of genius in what he did in irons, and I never felt I had the the license or the or the the permission to build irons that were too close to a Hogan Apex because, but there was a lot of brilliance dating back into into the middle '60s when the the power thrust first came out and with kind of what Mr. Hogan's weighting philosophies were, and that recycled over a long period of time. We, we've studied all the designs, and we've put them on our environment, and we've seen some remarkable things from even the, the Hogan blades back in the 60s and 70s. But it was a set of principles about quality, about a constant quest for perfection. Um, in one of Mr. Hogan's interviews, he said, you know, you never can achieve perfect. I, I got close. I never got there, but that trying to get perfect was what always drove me. And I think that was the way he played the game, um, the way that he ran his golf club company. And everybody to a person that I've ever met that worked at the Ben Hogan company for Mr. Hogan has this extraordinary reverence uh, for the man. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things here that's different than you mentioned the McGregor thing or, or you know, other golf clubs. They were brands. And this was never a brand. This was extension of a man's life and a man's personal passion and personal commitment. And that's different than a brand. That's different than an Apple or a Coca-Cola mm. or, you know, there was a Henry Ford, but do they still adhere to Mr. Ford's basic principles? I don't know. I mean, Ely Callaway, I mean, that company adhered to, to Ely's principles for, you know, a long, long time. And, you know, the, the Ping is a very admired company and they are still run by the Solheim family. You know, you might get somebody named Solheim on the phone if you call to complain. And, you know, here, the way we look at it is you're going to get somebody here on the phone that deeply loves Mr. Hogan, either by association, by personal, uh, you know, inner interaction with them, by just being here and being part of this mission. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing very well. Um, you know, we're a 60 year old startup, which is kind of an odd thing to be, you know, we introduced the golf club in Orlando in January and 
you know, we had a very incomplete sales organization. We had incomplete accounting and operating systems. We had not one retail account set up yet where you could go see them. And so, you know, we're only four months into this and, um, uh, you know, but, but we're 60 years into it as well. So it's an interesting challenge, but an opportunity that we all embrace. And, and we have not heard a negative one about the product, about the, about what we're doing and the path run and the mission and the vision. So, um, you know, I'm sure we'll hear a negative somewhere down the road. So far, we, we, we're doing the right things, I think. All that actually is really quite refreshing that it's not all such a super slick operation, which begs my next <clears> question, Terry, because your background is marketing. And there are those of us in the golf industry who might argue that marketing has not been a great thing for the game in the last decade and a half to two decades. It's sort of taken over other elements of golf. How do those two things, you're clearly genuinely passionate about the game and equipment, etc., uh, and how does that sit with marketing? Am I off the mark? Has marketing kind of taken over golf golf clubs and golf equipment in a lot of ways and turned it into something that it didn't used to be? Well, I'm an old school marketing guy. And to me, marketing begins with the product. And if you make a really great product that the, quote, marketing job gets a lot easier – I'm not, I, I, you know, I actually ran an ad agency back in my twenties and early thirties and, and, but I found out I really wasn't an ad guy. I liked the creating the messages and trying to, to find a way to resonate with the golfer with the message that was really meaningful to them or the, or the pilot, the airplane owner, the, you know, the car buyer, the house buyer, I had clients in a lot of areas. But what always appealed to me about quote marketing was finding a way to help somebody understand whether or not this is what they want. Not to create something that makes them think they want this. Um, I was always, I, I, I'm kind of from a, a reveal school, if you will. If you are the right person for our golf clubs, I want to be able to communicate what we do in such a way that you, that that resonates. And I connected with you because I do make what you want. If I don't make what you want, I don't want you to buy this because you're going to be unhappy. And nobody makes a golf club or a car or anything else that's right for everybody. WD-40, the spray lubricant, they make something that's right for everybody. But every, I mean, you know, every other category, you make a certain product for a certain set of needs, and that's what we focus on here. And, you know, we've launched our first iron, um, which is targeted to a specific set of needs, and we've launched our line of wedges, which is targeted to a very broad set of needs, and uh, because wedges are, are more universal than pretty much anything in the bag. But it really, my idea of marketing is matching a need to a solution. And if you do that well, you'll succeed. As, as opposed to matching a product to a sale, which is, seems exactly. to be what it's become. <laughs> is, uh... And you know, one of the things I, I can add to that, one of the things that I talked about when I do speaking engagements or when I'm one-on-one with golfers is, you know, if you're in the fairway and whether you're in Australia or Illinois or South Texas, and you're 148 yards from the flag, and it's cut over on the right side, and there's a little left-to-right wind blowing, pretty much you have the same goal in mind that Mr. Hogan did 65 years ago. You have a certain shape, a certain shot you want to hit. Nobody cares what number's on the bottom of the golf club. Nobody cares what kind of ball you're playing. Uh, a friend of mine in club fitting said the ball don't know. <laughs> and But the idea is, can you put the club head on the ball to make it do what you see? And, you know, Dr. Cook's wonderful book about seven-day utopia, about see it, feel it, trust it. Golf is, is a game of painting pictures. And we've done a lot of research into golfers, and they really want to hit real golf shots that they can be proud of, not just, hey, I shot 81 today. It, it's not a game of numerical gratification, right, Jeff? <laughs> um 
I don't think so, but there are people, as you know, who, who obsess over every stat. They keep their own numbers. They have card and pencil mentality. It's, 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 uh, it's not our thing, but it certainly is popular and, and with a lot of people, um, which brings me to the, the masses also regarding your clubs. They look – I haven't seen them in person, but they look beautifully crafted. And in talking about golfers, do you do – you, obviously, you've done some research – I'm always disappointed that there isn't a greater appreciation for craftsmanship of a club. We've talked about it here on the show. We miss our the, the beauty of the persimmon wood. Do you feel like there's an audience that's sort of longing for something that 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 has a little more design cachet and will last more than six months and um, and is just a beautiful thing to look at besides the way it, it functions and um, is your sense that there's an audience out there kind of starving for that? Well, I, there's no question that there is. Now, is that going to make us a, you know, a top five company or a or a mid five or mid ten company? I don't know that yet. But there's no question in my mind from the the just reams of communication we get, an email, a phone call, there there is a big audience of people who appreciate what that club looks like and and how it makes me feel to play this brand or that brand, this club or that club, and. And there's a group of people who are always chasing, there's some magic out there. And if I spend enough money over enough period of time, I'm going to find that magic. <laughs> but, you know, golf club to me is kind of performance art. You know, I can I can pull a team together here. And we have Ronnie McGraw worked for the Hogan Company for many, many years. He's our senior design guy. He's the guy that puts his hands on the master model on a grinding wheel and makes it really seeing you know visually uh brilliant young engineer justin honey came to us and, and he you know he's the engineering side so you know matching these two guys up that you know are 110 years between them <laughs> of age you know we got a 78 year old and a 33 year old and but we have a great combination of modern technologies that help us make better golf clubs that mr hogan would have completely embraced what we're able to do with forging technology today uh with the old school art artistry that you're talking about of making a golf club really look beautiful in every line and every curve. I, I'm, I'm very much about the visual, but you know, that golf club has a two inch wide striking surface that I think every golfer would agree. You've got to hit it somewhere between the ends of the grooves to have a chance of getting a good golf shot. And what we focused on is making your routine misses as good as we can possibly make them in distance control, trajectory control. And if you flare one way out past the end of the grooves on the toe, there's not a golf club maker in the world can make that shot turn out okay. And what's interesting about the irons in particular, that if you go take a caliper into a biggest retail store in the world and start measuring the length of the lines on golf clubs, it's two inches. It plus or minus 40 or 50 thousandths of an inch. The biggest club, the littlest club has the same striking surface. And that's that's kind of and and what people have been led to believe is that the bigger the club head around that, the yeah. easier it is to hit. And, and we've proven on Iron Byron and with Golfer that's not necessarily true. Hmm. It's an interesting thing, you know. It was an interesting thing I read from you this morning, Terry. You suggested that you know people quite often say, "Oh, I'm not a good enough player to hit blade clubs." That you know I play off 15 or 16, and you disagree. You say that anybody who plays off, who, who I think you said hmm. anyone who breaks 90 with regularity should be playing with blade clubs. Lots of people would disagree with you about that. Flesh that out for me. Well. I guess there's a couple of different ways to be a 15. I mean, I played in a member guest golf tournament two weeks ago with a friend of mine who's a 17, and and I'm playing now poorly, but I'm you know I'm a four or whatever. But this guy's a hell of a lot longer than I am. 
and he can hit it in the middle of the face and, and he can hit it hard, but he makes mental mistakes and his misses are really, really, really bad. And no club maker in America can fix that dead block or that rollover smother hook. I'm sorry, we in the club business cannot do that. That's your golf pro's job or your shrink. But <laughs> but <laughs> nice. But when when you hit the golf ball around the center two thirds of the face, then we as club makers can really begin to help you. And golfers have been brainwashed that you're not good enough to play a blade. Now, I don't want to go grab onto a 1956, you know, McGregor or Spalding or Wilson blade either. But modern, modern golf club technology has made a lot of clubs easier to hit. What we've done with the back weighting is we've moved the weighting from the far perimeter back closer to around that impact area. So when you hit one a little off center, you actually have a little more mass behind the ball than when you hit it in the middle of the club which is opposite of any muscle back blade ever. You know, any muscle back blade ever, when you start missing it, you're moving away from the mass. And we have kind of an interesting, kind of an invert muscle, if you will, that that does just some kind of mystical stuff for you. But we call it a player improvement club rather than a game improvement club because what we wanted to do, and we've accomplished it, when you miss the ball a little toward the ho- toe or a little high in the face, you feel that miss, but you get away with it. Most of the modern technology with the real thin faces, you got away with the miss, but you didn't really get a feel for what it was. Did I catch that little high? It's like, eh, that shot wasn't all that great, but I really don't know what happened. And you just kind of throw knuckleballs down there. But we have learned a lot of golfers are trying to maneuver the golf ball. They're trying to hit golf shots. A lot of golfers are not. But I play and I've witnessed and I've seen in research, I won't share my exact data, more people than you think are actually trying to hit golf shots out there. And even the 12, 15, 18, 20 handicappers. I mean, I'm playing golf with a 26 the other day in our little Friday game. And I, he had to had it over the right rough. I said, Gary, what are you going to do here? And I'm trying to coach him to a bogey net birdie on this hole, right? I don't do anything stupid because he's on my team. And he said, well, I'm going to cut a three-wood around that tree. <laughs> it's a 26. And you know what? He cut a three-wood right around that tree. Which is why he'll because try again and again, shot he, That was one <laughs> shot he said, I know how to do that. I don't know how to not do that, yeah. but I know how to do that. Yeah. So he hit a golf shot. And there are too many people of any handicap would not have been happy with the shot that he hit right there that moment. Mm-hmm. It gave him something to talk about in the grill room. But, you know, we're, we're out for people who want to be a better player of the game. Um, and, that, and there's a lot of pieces of that puzzle. And, and understanding the feedback from your golf club is a big part of that. And, and Mr. Hogan was a great believer in forged feel that his saying was that feel of a well-struck shot goes into your hands, up your arms, and right into your heart. And we all can relate to that if we play blades. Clates, you've played plenty of golf with plenty of golf. But just some thoughts on some of the things Terry's been talking about there, including just the, 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 the natural beauty and romance of, of older golf clubs compared to the irons we see these days in particular. Yeah, I played with Spalding a lot and those those beautiful top flight irons. But Terry, I'm kind of interested in. I played with someone the other day, and it's always fascinated me the same question: the, What do you put the demise of the great companies down to? McGregor, sort of Spalding, Wilson, Powerbilt in Australia with PGF and Slazenger, and they just they all they've all disappeared largely, replaced by TaylorMade, Callaway. I mean, Ping's been the enduring company, really. Well. I've always thought this in a philosophy of business. There is no such thing as a company. There are a group of people making decisions every day and taking actions every day, and they're doing it under some brand umbrella or another. But, you know, 
I, the, you mentioned peeing. I think one of the, the things enduring about peeing is they've answered to the same master since the company was started. Carson Solheim established a set of values for that company and his sons and his grandsons and the family members have always said probably, hey, would grandpa appreciate that? Would dad appreciate that? And most companies don't have that long-term guidance. I mean, I look at some of our companies in our industry and look at the revolving door presidency. Look at the revolving door leadership teams. You're always looking for some guy that's a little better than the last guy. And and how do you have continuity? You know, one thing that you look at, again, you, you mentioned Ping, and I have great admiration for them because they, they have a set of values and they perform to them every day. Quality, performance, service. What they want to be is the same thing they wanted to be last year and the year before that and the year before that. And I admire that in any company, um, whether it's a bank or whether it's a golf club company or an automobile company. Uh, I admire that. And I think when you look at companies throughout history that have drifted from their core values is when they get into trouble. Um, you know, Callaway, you know, I think they're headed back in the right direction, but that's a tough battlefield that those big guys play on. Um, but, you know, companies that drift from core values, regardless of what your business, whether it's your local restaurant or, you know, toy store, it doesn't matter. You have to have a set of core values that guide you every day and guide all your people. They all buy in. How much do you think of it was just companies making bad decisions and just, I mean, I know it happened here with PGF and Slazenger's. They went from making beautiful clubs to making terrible clubs. At some point in the late 70s, early 80s, they just started making terrible golf clubs. Well, I think you get to chasing a little bit higher margin or a little of this. And, and you know, I, I look at the golf club business, and I don't think I'm revealing anything in the way of a trade secret, but I've seen people pound a supplier to get three cents off the cost of the ferrule or another quarter out of the cost of the head. Or I had a shaft company that I have great respect for. And this is 20 years ago. And, and they had a, a phenomenal shaft and, and they had shown it to one of the major companies. And, and they told me that the major company said, this is the best shaft we've ever tested. Um, and at this price, we'll buy 600,000 of them or some ridiculous number that would have made that company. Well, the price that the, that the major company wanted was lower than the actual cost of making the thing. So <laughs> you can't lose money on everyone and make it up in volume. But they weren't willing to put that extra $8 in the shaft to, to, for, for what they said was the finest shaft they've ever tested. And if I found a shaft that was miles better, I would put it in the golf club. We think we have. Uh, put it in the golf club and charge accordingly. And people who want real value – We'll come find that because value in golf clubs to me is measured in performance. Did it do what you told me it was going to do for me? I'm the golfer. I, that's my value question. I had a set of expectations and are they met? And I sense a little bit of cynicism in the part of golfers or a whole lot of cynicism in that the last two or three or four equipment purchases might not have delivered everything they were told they were going to get. And price and value are different things, aren't they, Terry, which people often forget. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think probably most Maserati buyers feel like they got a great value. That's why, that's why golf pros collect Ferraris, isn't it? They hold their value, and when they on-sell them, they make some money out of them, apart from having just had the joy of driving them. I wonder, Terry, to Clates' question there, <clears throat> and this struck me, we went to a, an AAP news conference a few weeks ago, and they had the, the media heads from the local football codes here, the NRL and the AFL, Clates knows what I'm talking about, 
different sort of codes of football. Talking about, you know, the digital media age and how these sports are navigating their way through. And it was sort of interesting to listen to them because at no point did any of those people display any interest in the game itself, any love for the game itself. One of them was from um, a part of England that doesn't even play rugby league and he was running the media section for, for the rugby league. And it just seemed to me, and it, it really struck me, there was no passion among these people about the actual game itself. It was just a product and a business that they felt they were churning out. And that feeling I thought about, I was just thinking of that when Clayton was talking, that's the feeling you get from some of the major golf manufacturers, except for perhaps Ping, as you said. Is there anything to be said for the fact that those who run golf companies maybe don't have any interest, passion, or even understanding of the game in that way, the way the people who play it and buy their products do? Boy, that's a big old softball right through the strike zone. I'm going to let it go. <laughs> it, it kind of is, <laughs> no, but, no, but is it not no, true just and, no, and I important? Think, hmm. No, I think it is true and important because, you know, we've seen, I've been in this business for 34, 35 years now, and I've watched a lot of people come and go through this industry who didn't really understand. This isn't textbook retailing. This isn't textbook research and development. This isn't textbook anything. This is a cottage industry that people, your customers have a love for the activity they, they play. You meet very few people go, oh, yeah, I play golf whenever I, you know, every once in a while. You don't meet that guy. That, you meet the guy who says, are you, a, are you a golfer? Yeah, I play every Thursday at one thirty with my buddies or every Saturday morning at 9.15. You know, and, and, I mean, it's part of their life. And, you know, when the economy gets tough, the real golfers, you look how fast golf bounced back because real golfers who didn't lose their job with the U.S. economic downturn – woke up and went, well, wait a minute, I didn't lose my job. I can still play golf on Saturday, you know, but things are a little tougher and costs are up. So I'm going to start taking lunch to work twice a week, but I'm not going to give up Saturday's golf game. Exactly. That's not what's going to get from the real core and avid golfer. And Jeff, you know, that, that golfer profile probably a lot better even than I do, but you know, that, that person who I am a golfer, I don't play golf. I am a golfer. It is part of who I am. You know, I'm male, I'm a Texan, I'm a golfer. It, you know, in my world, I'm an Aggie. So you guys in Australia may not know what that, but I went to Texas A&M. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's part of your being. It's part of what's important to you. And yeah. one of the things I'm very proud of here is in our fledgling crew, we're up to about 45 people now. I think we have three that don't play golf, including everybody in the back that makes your golf clubs. These are golfers. We got five or six former high school players. We got two or three former college players. We've got two or three that their parents worked at the Ben Hogan factory back in the eighties and nineties. Um, we have people that have a deep love for what they do. I mean, we have two young men back there that are kind of right hands in, in production and shipping. They'll be the first one to tell you, I have the best job in the whole world. I get to make Ben Hogan golf clubs every day. And that's what we want. Um, if you call in, talk to a customer service person, you got to, 80% chance of talking to a PGA professional. Um, if you're called on by one of our field personnel, you have, I think, a, now a 60% chance of being called on by a PGA professional. We are about the love of the game, and that's what drives us in the kind of products and programs and, and service we provide. And plenty of PGA professionals to employ, too, since Dick Sporting Goods laid them all off. <laughs> Terry, I'm not asking you about that. I don't expect any comment about that. Clay, you had a question about uh, Terry's past. Uh, Terry, you were, I believe, in... Involved with Idolan, the wedges. Was that part of something you did? I'm sorry? Idolan, the, the other company that made wedges, was that something a part of something you did? Yes, I created the Idolan Wedge Company in 2002. Um, 
and we were strictly marketed our wedges online and it was to leverage two things that I believed in. One was this sole design that had two bounce angles in the sole, yeah. which is still part of the Hogan thing because it works. And I don't believe in bounce fitting and that's pretty controversial. We can go there if y'all like, I don't think it's possible. Um, but, and we thickened the upper part of the blade and it was the beginning of the evolution of, of how we got to, uh, to what we have, uh, in the Hogan wedges. Cause I played with those wedges for a little bit and then, they went the way of the Hogan irons. The grooves were illegal, I think. I mean, when they changed the groove rules, the ones I had were – so they were gone. But they were beautiful clubs. Well, thank you. And, and what happened is when the groove rule changed and we were doing testing and it stimulated some very interesting observations about ball flight and, and, uh, and grooves, which is another uh, – kind of a hocus-pocus area of golf clubs that I'd be happy to talk about if you challenge me. But, um, and then that led to the creation of a line of wedges called SCORE. And uh, we had a very good run with score. And when the Hogan opportunity came on, it was, you know, just a, uh, it was a, it, now it combined a love of the game with the love of this, of this man that I have big picture on my wall is my inspiration for 25 years. Um, and so we discontinued the score brand and, and folded that technology and more into what we do at Hogan. Um, those two controversial things. Come on. I want to hear. I'm, <laughs> I'm interested. Tell me about the Hogan focus on the, the I want to hear the controversial stuff. Okay, so let's talk about grooves for a moment. There's a lot of noise about grooves. In the Golf Digest hot list two years ago, year before last, there were 13 wedges recognized in hot list, gold and silver, and 11 of them had a groove story. Well, if you can make a better groove, how can, it, how can 10 other guys also have a better groove? And that, that's question number one. Question number two is the USGA changed the rules on grooves six years ago. If you still are doing things to grooves, you didn't do all you could do six years ago because the rules haven't changed. And what we've learned in our testing is that spin is a learned skill much more than a purchased attribute. It's like hitting it long. There's a lot of guys can pull a persimmon driver and hit it way past your most high-tech titanium 460cc because hitting it long is mostly about your skill, less about your golf club. And spinning the ball is more about your skill. And the reason I say that is this. In our live golfer testing, we took out three conforming groove patterns that we had drilled down. These are the three that we think are going to be the best. And we went into live golfer testing. Well, the problem was golfer number one spun the ball the most with groove number two. Except golfer number two spun it the most with groove number one. Golfer number three spun it the most with groove number three, except on his full shots. And his full shots, he spun it better with groove number one. It was There was no way to sort this out because each golfer spun a different groove a different way. But the biggest thing was any golfer we tested, line him up, roll 10 golf balls over, hit 10 shots out of the exact same line, same shot. We saw no less than a 20% variation in spin from shot to shot and as high as a 60% variation in spin from shot to shot. So how do, you, how do you reconcile that from an engineering standpoint? The way we reconcile it is you push the groove to the maximum that the USGA allows, you hold very tight to the groove, and you, let, and you help get the golf professional to help the golfer learn how to spin the golf ball. And we found that the shaft has a huge amount to do with the spin and fitting the right shaft to the golfer. And we do more work in custom shafts on wedges, I venture to say as a percentage than any company in the industry. Full 70% of our golf clubs go out with not with not a stiff steel shaft. 
And so h- how do you find out which shaft? I mean, I've never heard it, really sort of shafts. In wedges. People muck around with shafts in drivers and irons and all sorts of stuff. But I've never really heard about it so much in wedges and controlling the spin in wedges. That's a, a new one for me. Well, and there are some companies out there that are, you know, building wedge shafts. But what we found is this. Your ability to spin the ball really kind of comes down to your ability to have good hand action through impact. Now, I don't, I don't know you two guys in Australia. I know Jeff, but there isn't the guy here in this foursome of us that would be willing to arm wrestle anybody on the PGA Tour. So they have very strong hands and forms, and they can take that 550-gram golf club, and they can do things with it that we don't have the hand strength to do. But if I bring that golf club down to 500 grams, 470 grams for you, now your hand strength can do some little subtle manipulations that will allow you to improve your spin. That's what we've learned. I'm a big believer that average amateur golfers need lighter shafts in their wedges, and it lets them have, particularly if they're playing lighter in their irons, because then you have a what I call a seamless transition from your irons to your wedges. So, I mean, you think of a guy playing or a lady playing graphite in their irons, and you walk out there with your set match pitching wedge and your aftermarket gap wedge, because if you walk across fairway, it's going to be one of those two. You have two golf clubs in your hand that have entirely different head design and a shaft that may be 60 or 70 grams different in weight. And yet, you're not going to change your swing to that intentionally. So, you know, the shaft, I ventured off in from my contrary, but we know the shaft is very important. We've had very, very accomplished club fitters tell us, I would not have thought there was that much difference in wedge shaft from one to another until I saw it with my own golfers. So so the shaft's more important than the grooves, I think, in wedges is the takeaway. I mean... You have to have grooves on the wedges. It really is helpful if you put them uh, in any golf club. It's helpful if you push them close or, or all the way to the maximum of the USGA. And after that, it's a skill game. That's what I believe. Yeah, certainly. What was the second controversial? I can't remember. There was a you started oh, with bounce. one controversial. Bounce, My pet yeah. subject. So, and and again, this is kind of controversial, and this is Terry Kaler talking. Not I would think I, this was my philosophy way before we became Ben Ogan, but. I read what the other companies say about fitting bounce, and they say they can fit bounce, and they fit it to the turf, and they fit it to the golfer swing type, digger, slider, sweeper, these kind of words. That's what I've read. Are y'all kind of reading the same thing I'm reading? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, Mike, um, when are you going to play golf again? Oh, clates, it'll be every day. It'll be bad. Uh, um, much clates? Some, in a few uh, hours? Probably today. Okay, so... Uh, wh- wh- what hole are you going to pull wedge on the first time? Uh, the fourth, probably. Okay, and what's your lie going to look like? Perfect. Is it? Plates hasn't missed a fairway since the eighties, too. So, but, but if you airmail the green a little bit, what's it going to look like back there? Uh, up, up against the boundary fence. Okay. <laughs> so, so where I'm going with that is, is how do you fit turf? When you don't know what it's going to be, because, you know, I play in golf in South Texas, and we have very firm, fast fairways where I play, except that it's rained 20 inches since March 15th. Yeah, yeah. Our fairways aren't so firm and fast. Am I supposed to go get new wedges? Because I'll guarantee you the guys at Colonial last week were all in the tour vans getting new wedges, and they didn't have to buy them, right? Yeah. But if the Colonial members want new wedges, they got to go in the shop and buy them. Yeah. And so... My thought is, how do I fit turf when it's constantly changing and I don't know what it is? That's first question mark for me. Yeah. The second thing I said is I watch a lot of tour golf. 
And I watched tour players nip the ball clean as a whistle off the turf. And I also watched that same tour player three holes later take a big old beaver pelt divot. Yeah. Now, that tour player intentionally changed his swing path, right? Yeah. How do I fit a swing path if the guy's going to go changing it on me on purpose? How do I fit that? He's going to change it on purpose. The second thing is, this guy's a 16 handicapper. He has never made two divots in a row that look alike. Because he's a 16. He nips some of them and he digs some of them. And so if the if wedge bounce fitting is based on fitting your swing path and fitting your turf conditions, and both of those are constantly changing, how the heck am I going to fit it? I, I can't I can't figure that out. Nobody's ever told me how you can do that. And which I guess goes to the next question, which is part of, you know, we were involved in, in golf course design and the, the bane of the average punter on the sandbelt courses in Melbourne is the bunkers are inconsistent. So, you know, there are bunkers with not much sand, there are bunkers with lots of sand, there's everything in between, which I think is a great thing. I hate, you know, the notion of having... I'd love for the tour bunkers. to be like that. I would yeah. love for the PGA Tour to have no rakes and no idea what the bunkers are going to be. So, so I guess that goes to your point. How do you make a sand iron when you've got, you know, bunkers on the same course, some with four inches of sand, some with almost no sand? Well, and what we what we did, and I did this 20-plus years ago, I created a, a patent for putting two bounce angles in the sole and no little trickery, a heel bounce into them. And across the, the sole is primarily a low-bounce sole. Yeah. And then across the leading quarter inch, we cut a bevel at 18 to 30 degrees across the front of that front quarter inch. And that sole will not dig on a tight lie. It will not skip into the ball on a firm lie. It will not dig on a soft lie. It is as versatile a sole, and we have a, a, a battery of real believers in this sole out there, but it will not get in the way of your skill, but it will get in the way of your lack of skill when you need it to. And it, it's as magical a sole as I've ever seen, and, and we applied this technology all the way through the full set of irons, not just in our wedges, because turf interaction is a big part of iron play, too. And what we've learned with this sole is we get down in, in more subtle bounces, and maybe it's an eight-degree front, a two-degree back in the longer clubs and this kind of thing. But it allows you to have turf interaction, which allows you to be a more versatile shot maker. It's really magical. I need to get some in y'all's hands. You need to see what I'm talking about. Well, certainly, Quakes, who knows how to, nobody's actually <coughs> doing with a golf club, certainly not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so much for me. On to something a little bit different, Terry. You, you are clearly a golfer, clearly a passionate golfer. Um, What's your take on the state of the game at the moment? It's obviously the name of the podcast we have here, and we talk about all sorts of things uh, on the podcast. You're clearly making some beautiful-looking golf clubs, having had a look at some of the pictures, and I do want some. But what's your take on the state of golf generally? You've been around the game for a long time. You've seen lots of changes in the game, clearly. How do you think the modern game is at both the professional and the amateur level, perhaps? Because there are almost two different games, aren't there? Um, I, don't, I think you'd leave the word almost out. Um, I, I think, you know, Bobby Jones said golf and competitive golf are two totally different games, which I totally agree. But amateur golf and professional golf, I think there's a chasm between the two that has constantly grown. And, you know, I look back at when I was in my, in, you know, my influenced years in my teens and the late sixties and in my twenties, the early seventies and, you know, Miller Barber and then into Watson and, you know, Palmer. I mean, and these guys, and I watched, I'd watch golf on TV and, and they would say, you know, here's Tom Watson and he's 165 yards and he's got a six iron. And I go, well, that's pretty cool. Cause I had a six iron, like 152, 155, you know, I'm 
I'm good with that. I, I can relate to that. But, you know, I'm 63 now and I still hit, you know, a, a 29 or 30 degree golf club about 160 to 64. But that tour guy hits that from 215. You know, I'm sitting there at 215. I've got a four wood in my hand going, I need to hit this pretty good. And so, and he's hitting six iron or, or a hard five or whatever. And, you know, whatever that number means on a golf club, which is another topic we can get into about what Hogan's doing. But the fact is they're bigger, stronger athletes than they ever were. The ball goes further than it ever did. They swing at it harder than they ever did. Um, you know, one of my one of my favorite things to, to show golfers is in Mr. Hogan's first book, 1949, Power Golf. And he listed all his yardages, and he listed a minimum, a regular, and a maximum yardage with each iron, each club in the bag. And in that day, his regular five iron was 155. Now, bear in mind that that was the length and loft of somewhere between a modern-day seven and eight. So, hey, that was pretty good. That was a regular. But he showed his maximum at 180. All the way through the bag, he had 25 yards in reserve on every club from what he considered regular to what he considered max. Nobody plays the game that way anymore. I pull... PGA professionals all the time. You know, what's a comfortable eight iron for you? Uh, 155. What's a maximum? Uh, 160. Well, you're not going to be as accurate as he was because everything's going full out. <laughs> I look at modern day statistics and I look at how hard these guys go at it. And, you know, and, and they don't keep that in the reserve. And I look at the top player on the tour today will hit about just under 70% of greens and regulation through the course of a year. Two out of three. They're going to miss one out of three green. Two interesting statistics stand out to me about Mr. Hogan. 1960 U.S. Open, 48 years old, Cherry Hills, Farnham Palmer won. Mr. Hogan hit the first 34 greens in regulation at a U.S. Open course. That's unheard of. At, at, you know, and that's unheard of in Palm Desert, much less at a U.S. Open. 1967 Masters. And y'all all remember if you were around, but Mr. Hogan on at the age of 55 years old, Shot 67 on Saturday with a, uh, I mean, 66, yeah, 66 on Saturday with a 29 on the back nine or a 30 on the back nine. What you don't know is he shot 66 with 33 putts. Now think about that for a minute. That's beaten the course from tee to green by three. Yeah. Nobody even hits all 18 in regulation at Augusta anymore. <laughs> and this is when he was hitting a four wood to 13 and 15 two putting for birdie. So when I look at masterful control of the golf ball on a golf ball, that was harder to control clubs that weren't near as good agronomy that wasn't near as good. And yet here was a guy who kind of mastered making the ball do what you want. But the fact is we could relate to how far he hit it. You know, we could relate to that. He said a regular driver is 265. Well, there were my heroes in, in high and grade school in the early you know sixties. Those men hit at 265. They were big, strong hitters, but I don't know anybody hits at 345. I don't know anybody that'll pull a three wood on a 320 yard par four to drive the green. And my personal feeling is, does it's a question because I don't know the answer. Does the average young guy that wants to play golf that's out there and finds it he can't hit a seven iron but 160? Does he feel whole wholly inadequate as a man because <laughs> what he sees on TV is a seven iron supposed to go 210? And does that yeah. make the game less fun? I don't know. I, I know testosterone is a pretty powerful force for young men, and so it may very well be the case. But I think also I watch our young high school players. I'm appalled at the scores that come out of Texas high school where I grew up playing golf. And, and I grew up in a little bitty high school, and if you couldn't break 80, you couldn't make the team. And 
if you can shoot 85, you can make the team on a lot of big high schools nowadays. And I think it's because I watch these kids and all they want to do is hit it hard. And yeah. they don't care about scoring. Hey, I hit my six arm further than you did. Really? Because you made a seven and I made a five and that both of them stunk. So, you know, uh, but I, I, and so I think the state of the game in that respect is the, the chasm between pro golf and amateur recreational golf has gotten so big. I think that this tee it forward thing is great because I think they've made all of our courses too long. I know Jeff, I, I mentioned this to Jeff in our email, but I love his book, The Good Doctor Returns. And, and, you know, what I lament is our courses are too hard around the greens. It's not that they're too long, but mm. I grew up on the little nine-hole golf course without one bunker, uh, you know, probably 6,400 if you played it all the way back. And But when we were little, we could hit a two-wood, two-wood, two-wood to the shortest par four and get on the green and actually be able to two-putt for a bogey, and that was a big deal when we were eight. And I don't know in most modern golf courses, how an eight-year-old could hit three two-woods onto a green because there's a big old yawning bunker and the green is 11 and a half on a stump and there's railroad ties. And how do you learn to play golf on these things? And that's my fear. I think it's too hard around the green. I've always believed this, and Jeff, I'd like to hear your take on this. The closer I get to the hole, the easier the shot should really be to execute. Uh, I think that's, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, we, we, We've gotten to where green speeds are such a huge issue, and and yet that's all people expect is faster and faster, and it doesn't do anything but slow down the game. Um, it doesn't. It, it eliminates options on shots. It makes putting less uh, imaginative. Uh, you just go on down the list. So I think for the average golfer, it's the biggest, probably the biggest issue facing the game. And and Clates can tell you, and I can tell you from design work stuff that it's it's just a nightmare in so many ways in in terms of trying to create interest well and why do i want to go get beat up around the green i mean i i told my director of golf and who's a very close personal friend and last winter to winter a year and a half ago i said hey breen i said i'm just i'm not going to play till april or may when we get because we don't overseed in the winter and our greens get really fast and yeah. I said, it's just any fun for me and he said, what are you talking about? I said, okay, so number three is our hardest par four. I hit a pretty reasonable drive. We got an 18, 20-mile-an-hour wind, quarter now the left, and I sting the most beautiful turn-down draw four wood, bounce it up into about 25 feet above the hole, and I got a harder shot now than the one I just hit to get here. And I said, that's goofy. If I can hit that kind of a shot, it ought to be a piece of cake from here, and I ought to not be standing over that 25-foot putt going, how am I going to keep this close? And, and, I mean, to me, that just takes the fun out of it. And if I'm a beginner with yeah. beginner skills, beginner touch, I mean, okay, I've mastered moving the ball north and south. I got it up around the green in three, and I made a seven. And next all, I got it up around the green in two, and I made a six. And, I mean, how can that be any fun? Oh, it's not. I can tell you. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> From personal experience, you really are so I got a, Hogan, So I got it. Here's, here's my architectural idea. Not tee it forward, but green it forward. And bring build golf courses with beginner's greens out in front of the hazards, in front of the bunkers. It's not bunkered. It puts seven on a stamp, eight on a stamp. And play the regular tees, but the beginners play the beginner's green because that's where all the difficulty is. Uh, I think the danger in that, though, is that people still love – there's still a thrill no matter how bad you are when you pull off a shot where you carry something or you run it through uh, an opening – and so that's the danger of that kind of design is that 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 doesn't 
it fuel an excitement and a passion for for playing because we all know that there is a there's a great satisfaction in overcoming hazards sometimes. Well, I think once you get to a skill where you have a chance of that, and you know, I I don't you know, but back to the state of the game too. One of the things, and you know, I was telling some some people today in this conversation, I said, you know. When I got in the golf business around 1979, 80, and I was handling the advertising and marketing for Ray Cook Putters and Joe Powell and some of the greats of the old craftsmen of the game, and there was about 8, 10, 12 million core and avid golfers in the U.S., and they were over the age of 45. And now there are 8, to 10 to 12 million core and avid golfers in the United States, and they're over the age of 45. So it isn't the same ones, or they'd all be over the age of 85. So, you know, it's not. I, I really believe golf is a difficult game for a 25 to 45 year group because you have jobs and kids and little league and dance recitals and soccer, and you got a lot of demands on your time. And, you know, those are, you know, then when your kids all fly the nest and, and you kind of have some more money than you ever had in your life, particularly after college is paid for and more time than you ever had in your life. Cause you're kind of hopefully have your career and you haven't like, finally found your dream job at 63 like I did. But, you know, but I think that that's always kind of been the case. That's when leisure time and leisure money and, and people talk about golf takes too much time and, and takes too much money. It always has in relative to what you had. But people that quit golf don't lay on the couch four hours every Saturday and put their money in a savings account. They go spend it on something that's more fun. And I really believe yeah. that the reason golf loses people because it's not fun if you feel inept. Hmm. I mean, my game is going to that point. I got yips creeping in and everything. I'm starting to, I mean, I love the game and I go out, but it's, it's, it's harder than it ever was at 63 years old and building this company and having all these things going on and an ailing mother and all that. Well, it's hard. It's hard to get out there and block all that out for four hours and and do your best. What a shame, Terry. We were right on the verge of some sort of a disagreement there for the first time ever on the show. And now we're in full agreement again, which is just a tragedy. Okay, let's find something else to argue about. (laughs) Clay, I wanted to get your thoughts on what um, Terry was saying there about this idea of, you know, the Greens and whatnot. I think I'm probably more in line with Shaq. But then I want to explore some more this idea that we keep trying to sell the game to a demographic of people who it would seem are particularly interested. Why don't we focus on getting more people over the age of 40 who've got the time and money to take up golf? Because... I think that's a real winner that Terry's on there. But first, talk about some of the beginner stuff and the issues he mentioned about fun around the greens. Well, we were at Royal Canberra yesterday. We're rebuilding, which was the – it's kind of the one really good potentially inland course in Australia because all the best courses are on the coast. And the greens were firm and they're sort of four months away from opening and they're cutting them at five mils and we were putting them and they were – you know, the greenkeeper said, you know, this would be – of course, they'll be a little firmer and faster. I said, these are a perfect speed. They're probably nine. They're perfect. The fastest green in America in 1976 was 9.8 at Oakmont. These are a perfect speed. Because we're in Australia, grew up with Royal Melbourne running at 14 in 1970. It was complete insanity. We were spoken about it before. So it was great to play greens yesterday that were firm. In fact, they were hard. But they were eight or nine on the stint meter. I mean, isn't that perfect? Why must they be 13? I mean, this obsession with... Speed is just craziness. And the faster they are, Clay, it's the less movement they can have, surely, and the less imaginative and fun putting becomes. Yeah, yeah of course. Absolutely. Which is what the whole point of it. Yeah. Now, onto the notion of who, who plays golf and who we're trying to sell the game to. I think I agree with Terry. We don't seem to make any effort to just accept that golf is a game for a certain demographic in the main, which is people realistically, as he says, over the age of 40 or 45, and predominantly blokes. Instead, we seem to channel all our money into saying we've got to get the millennials and the 18-year-olds playing. What's up with that? Well, you know, to me, 
there's nothing neater than seeing kids out on the golf course. We got a group of kids at our club and those little guys are out there with their bags on their shoulders and, and, and playing golf in the afternoons. And, and I'm very uh, proud that our membership really cheers these kids on. And I love to see kids on the golf course, but, and I'm, I'm fortunate to be right here in Fort Worth, which is, and you all may or may not know that, but is the biggest first tee program in the nation by a very large factor. I think they last 35,000 kids in the Fort Worth first tee program. Uh, it's phenomenal. But we're introducing kids to the game and the character building and all that. But then if they graduate from first tee and graduate from high school, you know, a lot of golf is, is a little out of reach and uh, financially and time-wise. They're going to have, you know, new jobs and, and this kind of thing. And I had dinner with David Huber a few weeks ago. You know, David was at the, the National Golf Foundation when they did the Course a Day initiative. And they identified there's 50 million people out there that have an interest in golf. And so we need to build courses for them. But we didn't build courses for them. We built courses for people who could drop a hundred grand to join a club and build a half million dollar home on the fourteenth hole and and pay four hundred, five hundred dollar a month dues. Well, somebody isn't gonna say, gee, I think I'm interested in golf. I'm gonna go drop a hundred grand on a country club to really see if I like it. You know, it's not and we didn't build beginner level golf courses. It was you know, and, and so if but and I look at what top golf is doing out there. This is a pretty interesting phenomenon. Because they're making engaging with striking a golf ball kind of a cool thing. It's, you know, bowling alley, bar, friends, fun, loud, heckling, and all that. But what's happening, it appears, to at least they're introducing people to golf and getting the competitive juices going. And people go, you know, hey, this is pretty cool, but I'm tired of having Bill beat me every Friday night when we come over here. I'm going to slip in on Tuesday afternoon to take a lesson. I'm going to learn how to do this better. And that seems to be happening in the top golf. Uh, scenario, and I know there's a, a competitor top golf that's trying to get funded right now in Texas, but um, maybe that's where we introduce people to to the game rather than introduce them to them to it on a golf course. You know, uh, back in the 70s, 60s, you know, driving ranges were really popular. You could go by a driving range at night, and there are people out there whacking golf balls, not practicing to get better, but just going to hit golf balls because it's fun. There is a certain, I mean, all of us know there is a certain thrill. When you make contact with a golf ball and see it fly up in the air and, and do what you want it to do, which is relative to your skill level, what you want it to do. But there is a certain thrill in mean, the smile on a little kid's face when he hits a golf ball. And it, as one little kid told me, man, it went up in the air and everything, you know. So your, your standards are low, but there is a thrill to watching a golf ball fly off of a golf club at whatever level that is. And I think we need to encourage that. But the low-hanging fruit, to use that too often used term is the children and grandchildren of the guys that are already at the country club. They already have access. Money's not an object for them. Let's get them in the game. And I love first tee. And I think we ought to try to continue first tee and grow first tee, but let's don't overlook the kid who's, you know, playing a video game at home instead of going to the golf course with his dad, you know? Well, that's how, so. this is how you started, wasn't it, Terry? And one of the things we've lost in golf is the whole notion of a caddy program, which is how Mr. Hogan started um, being introduced to the game, and it's how Clayton started. Um, but that, as a generation, we've completely lost that, not just because of the golf cart in a huge way because of it, but that whole introduction to the game, that path is closed for the most part here in Australia. 
Yeah, and I think that's worldwide, maybe on, on from a broad scale. I caddied for my father and his friends when I was little, and I spent, you know, when I was young, I spent many of the many a Saturday and Sunday afternoon on the handle of a bag boy pull cart, um, you know, for two dollars. And I thought I was rich when I got my two bucks fifty cents if I also polished the Allen Edmund shoes when we were done. Nice. But, um, but, but you know, that was a great way to learn. Cause I watched those men, and you know, on TV golf wasn't much, and my golf heroes, other than Mister Hogan was those men my dad played with and watching them do their thing and not just playing golf, but the camaraderie. I think I really watched and learned. I didn't process it at the time, but watching the interaction between these men, you know, and, and the, the, the laughter and the, and the fun that they had and the, and the, you know, the jazz in each other and the needling and then the heckling and, and that kind of thing. And it was all part of the experience to me growing up. And, you know, it's a sad thing that caddies have gone by the wayside, but if you think about the economics, you know, okay, so, I mean, if I'm a kid willing to carry a golf bag and we're going to be out there for five hours, I need to make 12, 15 bucks an hour. Well, now that just added 75, $60 to a round of golf and, you know, and relative to the cost of the golf, I think the caddy fee has gotten disproportionate and it didn't have anywhere to go, but away, you know, it's like, okay, well, I can, my half of the card's going to be 14 bucks, but you know, my half of the caddy is going to be 45. Yeah. I'm, I'd rather spend that money on another green fee this this month, you know? So it's sad. I don't think there's a solution unless, you know, we come up with a new government program to provide government subsidies for caddies. And I wouldn't propose that. (laughs) (laughs) Shaq, just quickly on Terry's point about top golf there, have we got any sort of evidence anecdotal or otherwise that top golfers are then transferring to actual golf? And when they do, do they think, Golf on the golf course is going to be like golf at Top Golf, uh, and all the problems that might be associated with that at most golf courses. Um, I think it's too early. The World Golf Foundation is really clinging to it. They call them non-traditional golfers, and they're now totally embracing it. And I'm sure when they have some data to share that's positive, they will share it. But it's all strictly anecdotal, kind of what Terry laid out there, and um, and that's fine. It just it's it's also just a it could be more of a perception thing. It just is is branding the game is cool and and it's a it's it's uh they're basically bowling alleys of the twenty first century. But everybody who goes loves the experience and it doesn't really matter how bad you are and the food is great and the and the feeling that people have leaving them is is really positive. I know somebody who just went to one for the first time uh this week and is pretty cynical and uh just was blown away by the whole thing and and was really can't wait for one to come to uh to his town so uh well i think it's just going to take a while to find out if they they have that effect did you see jimmy walker's wife at the top golf did you see her video i yeah. saw some tweets i didn't watch a uh, uh well, i saw her swing yeah she's a beautiful swing yeah four times a year she plays Absolutely yeah, embarrassing. yeah. She smashed it out. It was, uh, yeah, she's great. great. She's also a she's she she reads all the writers and she's uh she's a I believe a she might even be a former journalism major. No, that's uh, Luke Donald's wife. But anyway, she's she's well read and she keeps an eye on things and uh, it's Twitter, nice. She's Twitter uh, feed is fabulous. Uh, it is, yeah. Outspoken. Good. Finally, to you, Clates, what's your take on some of this stuff? Top golf and other ideas, and should we be marketing the game to older people rather than younger people? What what's going on with the game? Well, I, I think. You know, golf is so much better. It's so much easier to learn when you're a kid because you can imitate. You know, you take up the game when you're older. It's so hard to be really good at it. And I think I think the better people play, the more they enjoy it, in a sense. So it's why it's important to get kids playing because it's so much easier for a kid to learn how to play even decently. I mean, I think any kid 
with any athletic talent who takes up the game at 13 and learns the grip can be an 8 or 10 handicap. I mean, Terry talks about, you know, the 16 marker being a good player, and it's true, they're decent. But I think any kid with any sort of athletic talent who just learns the grip at 13 or 14 and a basic swing can play the whole life on a 10 handicap or 8 handicap. And I don't know, I think the better you play, the better the game's going to do, the better people are at it. You know, the more fun they're going to have, the less frustrated they get. The, you know, it's just, just getting clubs in kids' hands and just teaching them when, when they've still got that ability to, to imitate and copy them. You know, I watched Rory McIlroy on TV or Tiger Woods and go and imitate that swing. Hurts me just to think about what those guys do. What is part of the problem then, Terry? And Clates is right. You know, it's the game for life and that sort of stuff. And the better people play, the more they enjoy it. But what we've become hooked on is selling people the notion they can buy a better game older in life, rather than giving them a game earlier in life and letting them enjoy it for the rest of their life. There might be something in that, mightn't there? You know, I think so. I mean, I I grew up. I'm very fortunate. My dad was a very good amateur player and and a good teacher and. Um, you know, just how times have changed. I, I mentioned I grew up on this little nine-hole golf course in a South Texas town of 7,000 people. We had a pro shop. We had a golf pro. We had that rack of bullseye putters and that wall over there with four or five sets of irons on it and that, you know, wall over here with, you know, four or five sets of persimmon woods on it. And, you know, we got to ooh and ah over that stuff. But um, a, a golf professional named Carl Gustafson was our mentor and our golf pro when we were kids and he was you know when when we were at the course you know all of our parents gave him complete control to do whatever we needed done you know from a discipline standpoint but he had such patience with us and taught us basics and taught us a lot of things and uh and, and that's sad that those kind of facilities don't have golf professionals anymore they can't make a living i guess and um and not too many of them but you know it was just a place to go learn values and and i think you're right i mean when you're you know, three and a half feet tall, you can't put the golf club in a lot of bad places and, and proportionate to your body strength, the golf club is a lot heavier. So you have to learn how to swing the club. You can't hit with it because it's too heavy relative to your body strength. And, uh, you know, I agree with all you guys. I mean, guys, it's so much easier to learn, but, and, and I love what you said about the grip, but I, um, you know, it, if you learn how to hold the club properly, and my dad, just, I mean, we always had a golf club in the den where we watched TV, and there was always a golf club there to talk about and just sit around and gripping and regripping and ungripping and regripping the golf club. Um, because if your hands are folded onto the golf club beautifully, and Ben Crenshaw's got one of the prettiest grips I've ever seen. Of course, Mr. Hogan had yeah, just, I mean, it looked like his hands were made for the golf club. But if your hands are on the club properly, in my opinion, it helps make you go into a proper swing path. And a poor grip prevents you from going into proper swing pad. Not that it's the automatic, but, you know, when I see golf pros out sometime on lesson tee, trying to give somebody a lesson in there, and as one of my friends once said, they're holding it like a ham sandwich. Well, you know, they can't make a proper turn and release because the, the hold on the golf club is improper. And, um, you know, so I always believe that that, you know, start with your connection to the golf club. That's all you have. And, and, you know, I'm and I'm a believer. You learn the game from the hole backward, and you learn games from the hands backward. So, you know, if you have a proper hold on the club, can you move your hands one foot back and one foot through? Because then you can hit a chip shot. If you can move them, you know, two feet back and two feet through, you can hit a pitch shot. If you can move them four feet back and four feet through, you can hit a half wedge. And and it's just kind of easier to work from impact backwards to me. Mm, a lot of sense. In Tom Watson's book. You know, he talked about. He, he he always loved the sound of a ball going in the hole because when he was little, his dad put him on the putting green with a little cutoff putter and said, look, there's the ball and, and make it go in that hole. 
And I, in, in Tom's book, I think he relates to somebody hitting the putt back to him one time. And he said, no, 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 I, I finish every putt. He said, because to hearing the ball go in the hole, that's the climax of the hole. That's what it was all about. You've Don't won. take that away from me. That's right. You've got there. You've won. Uh, as always, Terry, the threads of golf, uh, there are so many and you start picking them apart. We could be here for hours, but we won't. Finally, before we go, how can we get your golf clubs in Australia and elsewhere now? Where do I find Hogan clubs in Australia now? Because they look magnificent, I must say. They do look beautiful. Well, thank you. And, and we're having a conversation with some people in Australia about distributing this coming season. And and uh, we're trying to get caught up in, in our U.S. demand right now. We don't want to overstretch our ability to, uh, you know, we, it doesn't help us to set up accounts in Australia and then not be able to, to get golf clubs to them. But um, with our with our approach of building golf clubs in every single loft and, and being able to build combinations of lofts to fit any golfer, it's a little more complex production uh, than the typical set of golf clubs um, because we don't make six irons and eight irons and nine irons. We make, you know, 29s and 28s and 33s and 44s and 55s and uh, every single law, 44 golf clubs and all. Uh, but we're going to have distribution as you come into this coming season in Australia. I feel certain uh, people can come on our website, benhogangolf.com, uh, can engage and learn about the golf club, take our online process called Hogan Fit, which is a bag mapping analysis. It shows you how your current set's gapped out. People we've learned, they don't know what the lofts of their irons are. And they don't realize all the long clubs have been squeezed together and, and yeah. the gaps between the short clubs have been widened. And, and we it's a very illuminating uh, experience. And we have delivered some sets of golf clubs in Australia. We've shipped, you know, we've only been shipping for two months, but we've shipped uh, to Europe, Australia, uh, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, uh, a lot around the U.S. But uh, we're still a fledgling. We're Like I say, we're a 60-year-old startup, so we ask for a little patience. But um, if any of your listeners in Australia – uh, want to buy from us and uh, you know we can build direct for them while we're getting our distribution set up and then we can have them become ambassadors for us and help us set more golf pro shops up in Australia this season. I don't doubt that you'll have uh, interest from Australia as you will from all players of a certain generation where the Hogan, main, Hogan name really does mean something particularly I mean it was a whole second career for him wasn't it? it wasn't he didn't just put his name on clubs he was involved in club making and has, they've always had a terrific name. Terry, it's been fabulous to talk to you. Look forward to seeing more of your clubs mm-hmm. out there and hopefully you can come back on the show and next time I really would like to disagree with you about something. That would be terrific. Well, let's find something <laughs> to disagree about. You guys were way too easy today. Or I was, one of the two. Yeah. We all got along. Thanks for your time today. Shaq, as always, thank you to you as well. Absolutely, Rod. Thank you. And Clates, enjoy your round. Not sure where you, you probably don't even know where you're playing yet, but you'll play somewhere, I'm sure. Thanks for your time today, mate. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Rod. And that wraps it up for episode, what did we say, 56 of uh, State of the Game, marching towards 60. That's correct. Yeah, hope you've enjoyed it as much as we did. Looking forward to your company again next time on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.